Hello, and welcome to Unfrozen. I'm Dan Safarik, and I am not dead. <laughs> and I'm Greg Lindsay, and I am not the guest. We don't have one this week. We're back. It's been, it's been I don't know, a good month or so. Dan's been traveling. I've been flying back and forth, and we're here to tee up really the sort of the spring season here for Unfrozen. And so, I don't know, we'll get into it. Uh, I know uh, our next episode, or one of our next episodes, we'll see how things shake out in the queue, uh, is going to be the kickoff of the, as I've at least long awaited in my mind, of the Metaverse Metropolis series on here. We've been holding several cohorts at Cornell Tech in the past few months. Uh, we kicked off in January with a virtual Metaverse and the City Manifesto with our friends of the Sharing Cities Alliance. Uh, and then last month we had Dennis Crowley, the founder of Foursquare. Those of you who remember that app, you know, basically using it to become a mayor of various locations and using it to search and discover local, uh, local destinations, bars typically. Um, Dennis is now running his own metaverse company, so we had a really illuminating chat with him. So that's what I've been up to. But first, yes, why is Dan Sparrow, why do we believe you are dead, Dan? It's been a while and you are not in this hemisphere. There's, there has been some hibernation, that's true, uh, but it's only apparent. It was because I was in the future, which is to say 14 hours ahead of Chicago time in Singapore and Kuala Lumpur for two weeks. I was the chaperone of a group of uh, students from the Illinois Institute of Technology's first intake class of the Masters in Tall Buildings and Vertical Urbanism program. And uh, secondly, I was uh, doing some reconnaissance for our upcoming conference for the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat in Singapore and Kuala Lumpur in October. And the recon, I, and, and both the recon and the chaperoning, I guess I would classify under utopia slash dystopia, because there's really elements of both uh, when you visit these places. Well, I was the first time at the kids. Are the kids all right? Like, who were the who were the students here? Where were they from? How were they taking on verticality here? Like, you know, there's sort of there's sort of a poetic idea of basing that program at IIT in Chicago, but also like we don't build super talls anymore. Like, you had to do a field trip to KL to go see some super talls. So, right. Well, it isn't just about super talls. Uh, it is actually the the brief is to create a city of ten million on the. Well, in the most optimal place that you can find, based on the data that that uh, you can collect. In other words, let's look at the threat vectors. It's actually they should have been consulting Climate Alpha. I was to say I've got a startup that's working on this, and we're going to come back to a former ex-president who has a put out a call for exactly this kind of thing. But but where do the students end up there? So I mean, were they focused on Asian geographies then, or were they looking in the U.S. as part of their school brief, or where? Not at all. The a brief told them to, unbelievably, despite after assessing all the threat vectors, to settle in Crescent City, California, on the Pacific coast. Oh, this is amazing. This is a whole Twitter thread come to life because the people out there would be like, why do we not have a major metropolis at Crescent City, California? And my response is always, number one, the mess. Number two, the tsunamis that destroy Crescent City on a relative like clockwork basis. Yes, but sorry, stealing your joke. They looked at 3,000 cities or 3,000 counties, you know, data from across the U.S., and they looked at threat vectors like, yes, presumably flooding, earthquakes, drought, and like, I would think California would be in the bottom decile of all of those things, and then, or at least coastal California, and then, uh, you know, things like uh, food scarcity and political turmoil and those types of factors, and it's like, I don't know how you came up with that location, but that's what they have. And the brief was to build a mega city that was predominantly, you know, 
towers that were separated from the ground plane and such that the ground plane could be allowed to flood. Fair enough. Uh, 600-meter-tall limit and a 300-meter datum line in the middle where you could have horizontal, habitable planes connecting these buildings. It's that part that they went to Singapore to study. Otherwise, I don't think there's a good deal of relation between their project and, well, first of all, reality, but also... uh, you know, what's actually on offer in Singapore. Yeah, I mean, I'm no uh, Chicago School economist, but even I'm baffled by the idea of why the economics will, would encourage me to build 600-meter tall towers in Crescent City, California, when there's plenty of land use there. I mean, again, for those of you who are listening who don't get the reference, Crescent City is basically about as far north in California as you can go with like a sort of natural harbor and a settlement, but it's like 6,000 people. And yes, it was virtually destroyed in the 1964 Alaska earthquake tsunami, and there was one more recently, and is basically toast if and when the, the predicted big one hits the upper northwest fault, which you know might destroy much of the coastline of Oregon and, and Washington. I mean, Crescent City has a unique entrance. I was literally just reading up on this for, for this very reason, Dan, of the notion of like Eureka, Crescent City. Why don't we have a large city between Portland and San Francisco? This is what people ask every now and then for exactly this reason. But um, yeah, 600-meter-tall towers, like I... Yeah, okay, cool, cool, good brief. So they do have those. Uh, they have one in in uh, Kuala Lumpur, which we visited. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's PNB 118, because it's 118 stories. And, and basically you're also looking at like ground scrapers here. This is very archogram, right? Like So like create this giant horizontal ground plane that connects your towers. Is that what you're looking at? Well, you're still talking about the student brief. Yeah, sorry, the student brief, where we go back to Kuala Lumpur. Uh, kind of. It's like a very tall ground scraper, yes. I mean, okay, the, the, cool. the amount of area is probably, I think it's less than 100 square kilometers, so it's, it's, it's not huge. I mean, to, for reference, Singapore itself is around 720 uh, yeah. square kilometers and uh, is about actually not quite the twice the density of Chicago, which is really kind of hard to believe if you do venture out there because a lot of it's covered by greenery. And it, even though there are a fair number of tall buildings, there are actually fewer than in Chicago. And somehow it doesn't seem all that crowded. Yeah. There's a few spots that draw a lot of people, but otherwise it seems pretty spread out. Um, I, I think the way that they've done it is sort of by decentralizing the locus of, of uh, tall building activity into these planned communities that are all around the periphery. And that's kind of uh, really what we were there to study in part. We went through the alphabet soup of Singapore uh, uh, authorities, the Building Construction Authority, BCA, the Urban Redevelopment Authority, URA, and the HDB, Housing and Development Board, which develops 80% of the housing that Singaporeans live in. They live in government housing, and it has none of the associations that it does in the rest of the world. I mean, that alone would be you know, reason for a study trip. Um, it's, and it definitely keys into this theme of utopia slash dystopia because one of the things that if you go to the HDB hub, which is where they assign the housing to people, and it's not quite as draconian as it sounds, but basically you sit in an airport lounge, you wait for your name and number to be called, you go see an agent, you have to have your paperwork with you and presumably your... Uh, your spouse or your intended lodging partner, and then you you put down for a flat in a given building, and you're supposed to hold on to it for five years. You can't sell it because they want to stop 
or put a, you know, make sure that they're discouraging speculation. Uh, and they have model units, and it's like one-stop shopping, like all within this this complex on the north side of Singapore. And so you're hearing like this boom calling number A four two one six to desk B two, and they go and they get their house. It's like an angel gets its wings. Someone in Singapore gets an apartment. And then the other thing that was really interesting about that was the display, uh, you know, just telling you, uh, you know, what your, what your point in the queue was, there are allocations. Uh, so 33% roughly Chinese, 33% roughly Malays, and then 33% I slash O, which is Indian slash other. And the way that they keep sort of redlining and vast speculation and segregation from happening, and interestingly from getting, you know, uh, I would say constituencies that are ethnically based to form is to just straight up allocate this is this is how much housing you get if you're Indian background, this is how much housing you get if you're Chinese, and this is how much you get if you're Malay. So they do things a little differently over there. It is amazing. Singapore it is a fascinating place. I mean, I've, true cliches have never been uttered, but I am thinking quickly... Um, one of, you know, to tie back Crescent City back to Singapore directly, Vanity Fair recently published a 9,000-word piece on all of the horseshoe theorists, lefter, lefties and right-wingers who are ending up in Montana, the great American West, like the notion of exit out of America into uh, ideas of things like network states, of you know, creating crypto communities and tying this together, one of which the, uh, the intellectual godfathers of, um, I will mispronounce his name because as in a Midwesterner, his name should be like Balai, Balai Srinivasan, uh, but he wrote the book The Network State, based in Singapore, and there's a great quote in the piece where someone who is like a completely like crypto-pilled, like you know, uh, libertarian anarchist, literally gives a quote of like, "Man, I thought about moving to Singapore. Like, things just sort of work there." And I, I love the idea that you can come all the way back around your desperate desire for functioning institutions that you can go from American West, you know, anarcho-libertarian to just give me an apartment in Singapore. Just just hook me up. Just you know, let me sit in the waiting room until I have a place to go. So. Yeah, I mean, this is this is my buddy Parag Khanna of Climate Alpha. This has been Parag's whole riff all along that you know that things will get bad enough that people won't care about capital D democracy. They just want high functioning services and they just want to live their lives. And he may have a point there, but but there you go. Lean into the dystopia. So, what else did you see while you were there? Any other any other urbanist highlights there from uh, not the, I say from the Lion City? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, the you know the the. The, the architecture really is pretty remarkable. You can do a lot with the fact that essentially the climate is the same all year. Um, you don't have to worry about weatherproofing for cold conditions or even much change. So therefore, they've gone absolutely bananas with this idea that uh, it should be a garden in a city or a city in a garden, kind of both. Um, you know, uh, that hey, was actually a concept... Marks. Yeah, but that was actually a concept that was really supported by Lee Kuan Yew, who was the uh, the founding, uh, well, we won't say dictator. We'll say the founding uh, president from a single-party democracy that always gets Putting elected. Putting the nanny in the nanny state, the, pater- the paternal yeah. and the paternalism. But, I mean, you know, you want to talk about a guy who has had strong ideas and implemented them. You, you, you have to respect it. Um, and one of them was that, you know, we're not going to become a cesspool of sin and vice. And the other was that we are going to have a lot of greenery in the city because we are in a naturally jungle-fied environment. And so, you know, the architects and the planning is 
is incented so that people will create these uh, these beautiful planted uh, terraces, uh, sky bridges that are inhabited with playgrounds and you know people working on their laptops up there. I saw a violin rehearsal, uh, you know, 50 stories in the air on a sky bridge between two buildings in public housing. Uh, it was it was very sort of like, yeah, it's like the avatar future. Uh, in the urbanistic sense. And it was no small irony that the display at the Flower Dome in Gardens by the Bay, which is this enormous Disney-esque garden development on reclaimed land, um, fe- was featuring Avatar. Well, you know, it is interesting you mentioned like the Skybridge there, by the way. One thing to point out is, is that this, these use cases, particularly Singapore and Hong Kong and their vertical urbanism, get used by development economists like Chris Blattman, who was at Yale, I don't know where he is now, but Paul Romer, 10 years ago, when I was writing about his Charter Cities idea, this is where economists get the notion that, like, architecture doesn't matter. Like, and it, it is it's sort of interesting to sort of watch this sort of, you know, I don't know if this is a, if I can still use the phrase Mexican standoff, but the Mexican standoff between, like, trad architects, modernist architects, and the economists, because, you know, the trads would argue that there's human scale and you can't build these things. The economists would probably actually favor, in a way, you know, fans of brutalism or other things, the notion that there's no natural norms of architecture because you can see that like high-rise urbanism is perfectly works perfectly well because it's a cultural norm not anything having to do with the actual built environment but it is interesting when they take it further when paul romer like said to me that like basically like architecture doesn't matter as long as the buildings don't fall down the actual design of a city or design of a building is, is sort of beside the point which is when they were sort of making the argument of how you can build cities from scratch again we'll be coming back to those cities from scratch shortly but but it is interesting to sort of see how that plays out i mean and you know Coolhaas wrote a you know an essay in sml excel what 30 years ago now about singapore constantly the ultimate tabula rasa city there of at least the 60s through the 90s of remaking itself endlessly over and over in forms that we would consider generic but but there you go yeah and i would say that you know it's been pretty successful, uh, you know, and, and the architects that we talked to, uh, we, we spent a whole day with WOHA, uh, which is uh, Munsum Wong and Richard Hassel, a partnership uh, that has designed some of the most influential, let's say, vegetated high-rises in the city. Um, you know, it's funny how, how jaded they are about it. You know, Munsum was saying, yeah, you know, it's Singapore's a good enough city. You know, they figured we've got it to the point where we're so good, we don't need to improve on anything. And so, therefore, they accept mediocrity in a lot of the developments. And I was like, you should come and see the mediocrity we have going on. We're number one, so why try harder, you know? Yeah, and they've managed to export their work to places like Brisbane and uh, elsewhere that, that have slightly different, you know, economies and conditions, but the, the, the tropical vertical urbanism still works pretty well. I mean, like, you could certainly do something like what they're doing in Singapore, if not what the students are trying to uh, execute in this year-long program, you know, in a place like Miami, if conditions would allow. And I mean, attitudinal economic conditions, not the call for it from an environmental standpoint. That's true. I would say, talk about cities that could learn from each other, you know, where's that, where's that, you know, the Hong Kong, rewiring the Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Miami grid there, that would be a good one to do. Um, very fun. Well, what else have you been up to? So you're back, you've recovered from your jet lag, and how is planning for the conference? Any particular highlights coming up? Well, I think we're going to uh, have our reception uh, at the top of the Capita Spring Tower, which is uh, uh, Bjarke Ingels design. Um, that was actually one of the other highlights, I must say. Um, you know, on the face of it, it's uh, just basically got your, your typical sort of vertical 
vertical strapping that you find on every uh, you know office high rise but then at a few key points it's it's kind of uh, pulled apart into these sort of ovoid shapes almost like a giant had gone up to the to the munions and and pulled them apart and said peekaboo and within the uh, within those spaces there are sky gardens that are non-conditioned and they extend something like eight floors so you've got like a spiral path that winds down around the core and you know the bulk of the office building is both above and below you but then in the space you're in it's actually just like an open cage uh, filled with greenery and exercise equipment and follies and then they have this sort of a version of the same thing on the roof with an Australian restaurant so I, I think we're getting that top space I'm not sure but um, we were all pretty taken with it uh, there were a lot of photos taken, a lot of selfies, a lot of selfie sticks over ledges. That was kind of the theme of the whole trip. I can, I can see that. I would say, I will, I will admit, it just literally occurred to me just now that, like, you know, if, uh, just like some people have the equivalent of the seven peaks, you know, they want to climb all this world, this, the tallest mountains in every continent. I definitely want the duality of, like, I want to definitely have a selfie in the Sands Marina Infinite Pool uh, on the rooftop, and then I want to get one in the Devil's Pool at Victoria Falls. Like that would be the the two there, Vertig- vertiginous bodies of water, still bodies of water. Be a very good Great pairing idea. that way. For, yeah. So you know, I actually we careful. did get a tour of of uh, Marina Bay Sands. I was trying to get everyone to stop calling it MBS for obvious reasons, but um, <laughs> couldn't stop them. It gets confusing in architecture land if you do that. Yeah. It is. It is because it's like, which one are you working for? Who's the client? Um, yeah. Uh, the director of sustainability took us through, uh, you know, past the whole infinity pool. And, um, you know, he was, I was saying like, how, how many, t- you know, cell phones do you have to dig out of there every day? He's like, he's like, we've lost count. He's like, there, every day we have to go down with the scoop and clean it out thoroughly because you wouldn't believe what ends up at the bottom of this pool. Amazing. Back in my day, it was pennies. Now it's iPhone 14s. That's how it goes. Mm-hmm. Slightly more than a penny. The most, actually, the most fascinating thing about Marina Bay Sands, though, um, despite the fact that, yes, it's spectacular architecture and a cavernous interior space as well, um, was in the basement. Uh, they took us to see the uh, back-of-house operation. They have 10,000 employees, and they all get one-day turnaround on dry-cleaning their uniforms. This is via a massive robotic system that is like the size of the baggage retrieval at an average airport, and you just see all these uniforms going back and forth and, you know, multiple loops. And then there's these sort of not quite man-sized doors where people can reach in, put their clothes, and get them back out by typing in a code. That is remarkable. I said that inspired me. I wish we could, like, we, we, could, we could do a seance and bring back the ghost of John Portman for, like, a tour of, like, yeah, the Marina Bay Sands and, like, the Burj... Uh, um, not the Burj Khalifa, but of course the original Burj Al Arab, the original sail shape, the original icon of Dubai, which is another, like probably the largest atrium I've ever seen. And I can't say I was a fan, but it would be very curious to see what Portman thinks of the contemporary mega atriums, Jin Mao Tower and Shanghai and all the other ones there too. I mean, I think, I think the Shanghai ones he would approve of. Those are very much in his vision, but I'd be very curious about uh, Marina Bay Sands and the others. But that sounds like quite the architecture tour. It, absolutely. And we even got a little non-architecture in as well. We went to the treetop walk which is a walk through the forest canopy saw some monkeys um tried to take their photos but they were too fast um and then over in uh kl we made it to batu caves which is the 
opportunistic uh, uh, monument created by a Hindu businessman in the early 1900s that is a very colorfully painted shrine. Um, and, and it's basically all inside these recessed caves that require you to climb 275 steps to reach. A uh, lot of monkeys there too. And uh, I did more, probably more climbing on this trip than I have in the entire preceding year. Uh, part of that was due to the fact that the elevators failed in my Kuala Lumpur hotel and I had to climb 18 flights in the dark uh, to my room. The perils of super talls. Uh, or not even yeah. super tall. The perils <laughs> not of even super. <laughs> just, just Bush League tall and uh, apparently, you know, I don't know. One of our elevator vendors needs to be notified that uh, they're in need of a replacement. Well, one of the ways you avoid climbing stairs in the dark is, uh, is to spend your time, like I've been doing, in the metaverse. So that's, that's been my, uh, my, my primary residence as of late, uh, that and shuttling between cities due to life circumstances. Um, but I would say I'll use this opportunity to plug before I forget on our upcoming episode, because this relates to my program, we're going to have uh, Nick Kaufman of Spectra Cities and, uh, and Andrea Ion Kojikaru of Numina, um, founded after the Kantian notion of a, a Newman of information, and, um, and yeah, the pair are going to talk about uh, basically the project. The Spectra Cities is a new startup by Jump Bikes founder Ryan Rzepke, um, or Zepecki, again, names I can never pronounce correctly, uh, but that's due to a shortage of vowels in my particular case. But in any case, he, Spectra Cities is creating cities in the metaverse that Numina has built on their technology. But the idea is you're going to use it as uh, SimCity for real. You're going to use it as an urban prototyping tool. You're going to use it as a space where you can go in and basically use it for... Uh, doing sort of collaborative urban engineering and placemaking with very low stakes because it's virtual. And then basically you can sort of take the ideas that come out of those virtual sandboxes and then perhaps potentially build them in the real world. The ultimate vision is the idea of something like, you know, just like, um, you know, those of us who are old enough to have grown up on Photoshop, for example, now, of course, it is, you know, Canva, which, you know, web-based, easy tools. Adobe is trying to buy it for $20 billion. That deal might be blocked. But in a way, this might actually be the sort of urban version of that one. I've actually had friends ask me, um, how do we disrupt Autodesk? Like the tyranny of BIM systems. Like how do, you, how do you get to something more intuitive? How do you redo the UX and redo the plumbing? And it'll be interesting. We'll, we'll talk to the two of them about you know, whether this represents that beginning of an evolution and then what is enabled for the cities. Because the idea of being able to you know, prototype multiple cities at once to build new cities in the real world it sounded like an academic idea, but not only an academic, literally in the sense of Crescent City, but on the news while you were gone, Dan, you know, President Trump has come out with a new plank, his first, his, literally his first new policy piece in his potential 2024 presidential run, I forget if it's officially declared, we're just all assuming, um, is going to be 10 new freedom cities, uh, you know, which he wants to build on federal land uh, to accommodate U.S. residents. Um, he wants them to be leaders in the new practice of electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, so flying cars. And, you know, as some people were speculating as well that, you know, that given uh, during his presidential tenure, uh, you know, the passage of requirements for federal buildings to be in the sort of neo, various forms of neoclassical architecture styles, Georgian and otherwise, um, that basically what he's proposing is the plot of Bioshock Infinite, which is a best-selling game of 2013, which imagines a rogue floating city uh, that's designed to be a permanent Colombian exposition instead becomes an armed terrorist fleet in the sky. It's, the plot's convoluted. But there you go. Can you imagine, like, you know, like flying around in your 
you know, electric VT, VT, VTOLs, like landing and like, you know, all sorts of federal courthouses. That's the idea of it. And, you know, I, I, it's fascinating. I think no, no one has stepped forward to claim responsibility. I was joking on Twitter that like, who is the Carlos the Jackal? Like someone needs to put out an old school manifesto claiming responsibility for these ideas. I'm like, oh yeah, we incepted this into him. He got this from somewhere. I need to know who gave him this idea. Um, and, you know, related to that, also while you're gone, Dan, I mean, one possibility, I say this half facetiously because, you know, we got into a fight with Zone Alma Mater while you're also gone, speaking of neo-traditional architecture, um, you know, you know uh, University of Notre-, Notre Dame, of course, which has a, you know, its own school of architecture that is one of the few places to really sort of practice the art of sort of, you know, neoclassical architecture. One of their own alumni railed on Twitter against the school's very admirable hiring of a specialist in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it had to be censured by his own school because of this. So you can sort of see again the, the, the ideological fissures that run through the traditional architecture community. It'd be very interesting to see how those play out there. But I was thinking about this, about the massive pushback um, because, of course, the, all the dog whistling, that particular alumni, whose name I will not say because I don't feel like being sued. Not that I'm libeling him, but let's just not even go there, shall we? Um, he was pretty angry about it on Twitter, that was all I will say. But those are some of the sort of the interesting sort of things that popped out there. But it is really remarkable here that, you know, this idea that, you know, we have former presidents speaking up about this. And then the last thing I'll say about my own uh, particular work is, you know, it's a vaguely having to do with Urban Forum, but I've spent uh, the last few weeks writing up a report that's forthcoming from uh, commissioned by the United States Secret Service um, and the Department of Defense. I'm writing it in partnership with Arizona State University's Threat Casting Lab, uh, which is run by my friend Brian David Johnson. Um, BDJ, as we call him, is going to run the capstone exercise of my own Metaverse Metropolis project. Threat casting, what it does is, is you collect subject matter experts. Um, they you know, lay out the contours of the various threat that you are exploring. You then have small groups of teams, um, and they basically take aspects from these experts, and you sort of do a, a mad lib. You then write a story uh, imagining a person or a place doing a thing um, in response to this threat according to these contours. And you basically sort of do two hours of imagining this, and not only the story, but also what will lead to that story and how might you go back and prevent it at every step. And when you're done, as, as I did, you get like you know three dozen of these, and you can sort of see some really interesting themes emerge. Um, and, you know, our particular focus is the idea of micro-targeting, the idea of using artificial intelligence and other sort of technological tools to very narrowly target an audience of one. Micro-targeting is the tactic that Karl Rove developed to win the 2004 election for George W. Bush and that Cambridge Analytica did with social media data. So now you take that further with AI and other tools. That's the kind of darkness we were at. And the only urban aspect, which I will say, getting a little far afield here, is, um, is that one of the teams imagined... How would you fake a school shooting? Which I thought was really the darkest possible timeline here. But they imagined it that you would you could use in the future. You would be able to hack internet connected school systems potentially to take over the public address system. You would then use a deep faked voice, AI generated voice, to make official sounding announcements that you know you should shelter in place if there's an active shooter. Uh, simultaneously, you could do deep faked calls to various law enforcement agencies and the press to basically create. Uh, not just, you know, the panic around it, but also the documentary evidence that these calls were made. And then you would go on social media and you would deep fake still more posts, uh, implying that parents were there or that things or that rumors were circulating. And you would do this to sow as much panic and paranoia as possible. And, you know, of course, we had to ask the question, why would you do such a thing? In theory, this would be verifiable. And the reason we were thinking about this is because, of course, Alex Jones, the conspiracy broadcaster, had just been found liable by both a jury and then a judge to pay nearly one and a half billion dollars in damages to the family, eight families of Sandy Hook victims and the FBI agent that he defamed. 
So you get back to this and we ask the question, well, why would you do this? Well, Alex Jones never, ever tried to plausibly claim that he did believe that Sandy Hook was a false flag operation, as he, as he did say on air many times. But we realize that, you know, you would do this so that in the future you could actually create plausible deniability. That we're, you know, we're about to see a, perhaps a, a war on reality itself. And this will come back to the urban environment. This is, of course, the whole crux of my, you know, Metaverse Metropolis project. Um, the idea that we might actually start to see, you know, not just augmented reality, but also diminished reality, where you will have certain things that will not be visible to certain people under various conditions, that you will have hidden worlds, hidden forms of information, in addition to not being incompatible realities. And, and again, this comes back to our listeners and I think, you know, the profession of architecture itself. And, you know, given the fact that we have multiple architects thinking about these issues is, you know, you know what happens when we no longer have the built environment and having public space as a place for one public or at least multiple overlapping publics that can't deny this. Um, we're about to add these layers that will then shatter and fragment those publics in various ways. And so we're going to keep exploring that some further as we finally, after teasing this for about three months here, that we're going to start bringing these guests on the pod. We're finally going to do this. So I hope, uh, I hope listeners are up for it. So, so that's what I've been up to. So who do we got next coming up, Dan? What, what do we got in the season ahead? We've got the, the requests are trickling in. We've got some good guests coming. Uh, we do, actually. Um, so keeping in on the, uh, on the uh, sort of dystopian themes, but ones that need to be addressed, uh, I believe we will be having uh, Peter Apps, who is the author of Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen, which is a dissection of all of the failures that led up to the Grenfell Tower disaster in London in 2017. Um, that's going to be pretty fascinating. Um, interestingly enough, he's actually a trade magazine reporter for uh, housing developers for the public housing, the privatized public housing developers in Britain. So he knows what he's talking about. Um, he's, you know, coming in from the inside, as it were. Uh, and then we've got, um, we'll probably have a, both the administrators and the ultimate winners of the Mies uh, Crown Hall uh, America's Prize, or known, otherwise known as MCHAP. Uh, that is a institution that started at IIT a little bit less than 10 years ago, where basically uh, they were looking to kind of promote the good works of lesser established firms in uh, predominantly the Americas and predominantly South America. So um, they've had some interesting awardees come out of that, and there's usually a fancy dinner in, in the Crown Hall that's involved with that. Um, so we'll hopefully talk to Dirk Dennison, who is uh, a longtime uh, organizer of that program and an architect in his own right, um, part of the part of the Mies uh, legacy, actually. Uh, and then whoever ends up winning the competition, they're down to six finalists. Amazing. And I should just note, because, Dan, it's, it's coming up. We're basically two months out to the opening of the Venice Architecture Biennale, which is... As everyone listening to this knows, as a highlight on our calendars, they've announced the uh, the various lineups there. It's uh, as expected. It's going to be uh, a, like basically a who's who of Afrofuturism and architecture there. I mean, not just the usual suspects like a David Ajayi, but like amazing people. Um, you know, uh, I was I also want to call out Emmanuel Pratt, uh, who runs the Sweetwater Foundation in Chicago, who I had Spike speak at Recite back in 2019 doing amazing work there. And so, yeah, I think we'll be very excited for that. And I think we'll also try to have at some point, it's on our wish list, both the curators of the Biennale, if we can reach the press team, but then also hopefully the Chicago Biennial, which will actually be this year because due to COVID, the Biennale and the Biennial are now in the same year. So it'll be very interesting to sort of see how that works out for cross-pollination of ideas and, uh, and the beautiful people flitting between Venice, between Venezia and Chicago. 
I count myself among them. I'm sure you're talking about me, right? There you go. I was going to say, <laughs> you're tailor-made for this, Dan Sparek. Wow. Like, truly, the, the, bipolar, the bipolarity of architecture in 2023 runs through Chicago and Venezia. So very exciting. All right. Well, on that note, I think, I think that's got us caught up. I think we've got a, a setup for the season here. So yeah, we'll be back soon with another episode on Frozen. We're bringing out our first guest. We'll see what the order, how the order shakes out here in terms of who we can get taped and who we can get released. Um, but yeah, we'll have, uh, I know we'll have more Metaverse guests soon in addition to the ones Dan highlighted. So, so if you're all, for all of our listeners, um, I hope you'll stick with us this season and take care. Stay tuned. We are very much alive. I'm alive.